This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. The BFM Breakfast Grill, connecting you to the top people and ideas. Powered by U-Mobile. 5G makes business sense. Good morning, you're listening to The Breakfast Grill. I'm Shazana Mokhtar. The global pharmaceutical industry experienced extraordinary profits due to the circumstances of the COVID-19 pandemic. But how are players adjusting to a post-COVID environment? Joining me today to discuss this and other industry trends in the Malaysian context is Deepti Saraf, General Manager of Roche Malaysia. Deepti, good morning. Welcome to The Breakfast Grill or welcome back to The Breakfast Grill. Thank you so much, Shazana. It's good to be back and good morning to all of you listening in to us. Now, we spoke to you about a year ago. So I want to start with a big picture look at Roche and some of the changes uh, that have taken place in the group since then. Uh, so since our last conversation, uh, Thomas Schnecker stepped up as the new group CEO, while Teresa Graham was appointed as head of Roche Pharmaceuticals. What priorities has the new leadership articulated for Roche in this post-COVID-19 environment that we're in? Yeah, thank you for that question. Firstly, uh, we have a new CEO and a, a new CEO, both at the group as well as the pharmaceutical level, uh, from an internal organization, right? So these are people who have been with us for a long time, which speaks about how we like to develop and grow our talents, I think, internally. I think in terms of priorities, we remain a strongly R&D-focused organization. We have always, you know, for the last 125 years, our foundations have been laid on deep science and uh, especially science in areas of high unmet needs. So we looked at oncology when there were no players in oncology. We looked at rare diseases when there were limited players in rare diseases. We are now into ophthalmology, again, in areas of high unmet need. And that continues to be the focus. Uh, last year, we invested about $15 billion in R&D, one of the highest investments, not just in the pharmaceutical sector, but across sectors, including players such as Google, Apple, we are in the top 10. Mm. So clearly, our focus remains on identifying solutions for our patients in areas of high and met need. One other area where we want to like continue and start prioritizing focusing is digital solutions as well as data and making sure that all decisions and data in the healthcare systems in R&D are based on strong analytics uh, and you know are based on areas where we can actually make a significant shift. And the third big priority for our CEO or for any CEO is the people and culture. Now, we have this very high, innovative, agile ways of working. During COVID, Roche was one of the only companies that changed completely its trans its model, its way of operating. Uh, we realized during COVID that we are not just suppliers of medicines. We have to step up as pharma companies. We have to be a partner in the healthcare system. So Roche has transformed its entire operating model. We have let go of our traditional incentive-based selling model. We have introduced new roles called patient journey partners who are not incentivized on selling products of Roche. They are actually incentivized or their their KPIs really actually talk about how to look at the end-to-end -end patient journey mm. and how to make this patient journey smoother. 
how to make sure that the right patient gets the right medicine at the right time. And that's been like a focus. These are the priorities for us going forward. That's really interesting. So looking less at just the quantity of medicines being sold, but really at the quality of patient care that's being received from end to end. So that's something that Roche is championing at the moment. I do want to take a look at the uh, impact of COVID-19 or the the COVID-19 pandemic receding in our consciousness. I mean, Roche has baked in a 5 billion Swiss francs drop in sales revenue due to the decline in COVID-related therapy and diagnostics. And for the first half of the year, we did see overall sales decline by about 8%. I'm wondering if this is a trend that's being mirrored in Malaysia. Are you also seeing a similar drop in COVID-related products affecting your top line here? Of course, our COVID-related products have dropped. But what had also happened during COVID is care for other therapies had also dropped, uh, such as cancer, such as ophthalmology, rare diseases. And we have seen a pickup of that because Mm. of which uh, we are delivering a healthy double-digit growth in our overall uh, revenues this year. Uh, Some of our key products uh, continue to deliver a very high 30% plus growth rates here in Malaysia. Uh, So I would say, yes, COVID had an impact. Uh, But we are also glad that that's now out of the way and cancer care and other uh, imminent therapies and other imminent care is back and patients are taken care of uh, in those areas uh, where, you know, it had dropped during COVID. Right. Can I just clarify, Roche overall has three separate business entities in Malaysia, right? So you specifically are covering pharmaceuticals, but then there are separate uh, organizations covering diagnostics and consulting in Malaysia. Can we talk about just the percentage contribution of each business segment to overall revenues? And I guess how maybe the group is looking to rebalance that or is there like a target in terms of what the percentage split uh, wants to be? Do they want to grow the diagnostics? Do they want to grow the data? How does that look like? Yeah, so in Malaysia, we do have three entities. We have diagnostics, uh, we have pharmaceuticals, but the third entity is more a shared services center. Thanks to the great policies that we have here, uh, it's one of the best countries, I think, to have a shared service center. This is not a revenue center for us. This is more like a hub to provide services to Roche globally. Uh, So I don't think we talk about, you know, how much is the revenue split between the two. And, you know, we basically want to make sure that patients receive holistic care. Mm. And therefore, we look at companion diagnostics or diagnostics that support treatment uh, in a a joint way. Mm. Um, And we are looking at growing both the businesses by really focusing, again, like I said, on areas where, you know, there are challenges. Thankfully, during COVID, what became extremely clear is the role of diagnostics. 80% of the decisions in healthcare can go wrong if not not for a good diagnostics, right? So uh, I think what's really important is that both these need to grow healthily uh, to provide best care for both, both uh, for the patient as a whole. Yeah. Okay, so it's complementary in that sense in terms of uh, what you do here in Malaysia with pharmaceutical and diagnostics. We are seeing still a drop in the diagnostics business because of COVID-19. What would it take for that business to, I guess, be propped up for other diseases moving forward? Yeah. So I can talk a little bit about a few examples that that sort of are helping us to pick up our diagnostics business too. We recently entered into a partnership uh, with a leading lab here in Malaysia where we are bringing in technology transfer from our global headquarters here in Malaysia. So we have a partner called Foundation Medicine, which is the only US FDA-based, FDA-approved comprehensive genomic profiling. 
everybody's cancers are different and comprehensive genomic profiles allows us to test your cancer versus my cancer what is the genetic mutation so that we can provide a personalized treatment to the patient mm. so we have recently entered into a partnership uh, here locally to bring the technology into malaysia which will help the malaysian healthcare ecosystem be more capable uh, in providing these in house to patients uh, reducing the time of uh, getting a comprehensive genomic profiling report from 22 days to 8 days so comprehensive genomic profiling in cancer allows you to personalize your treatment and that's that's one area where we are looking at to grow our diagnostics business another specific area is let's say hepatic cell carcinoma or liver cancer as as it's commonly known again this is an area where we are working very holistically between diagnostics as well as therapeutics which is pharmaceutical business so we have products in diagnostics that allow for early diagnosis of liver cancers this allows for patients to get better treatment earlier on in the therapy and sometimes this can be even in the curative curative settings which is you know something that we are trying to aim for in cancer cancer should no longer be seen as the disease of the dead or you know the death mark right so earlier diagnosis allowing for earlier treatment uh, and then we are looking at patient monitoring tools uh, that allows for patients to keep a track of their symptoms and how they are faring on the therapy again this data can be used by their uh, physicians to make better decisions for the next cycle mm. so again these are these are ways in which we are looking at holistic diagnostics to treatment and then patient monitoring solutions that brings the whole patient journey and delivers better outcomes what do you see as the challenges to making this form of personalized healthcare using data genomic data you know all all the personal markers that uh, patients would need to share what do you think are the challenges in uh, having that gain traction here from what i hear it's still very nascent right what what do you think needs to be in place for this to become more widespread Yeah that's a great question and I think that's true for any technology right like I think health literacy overall in Malaysia is is something that we need to improve and I think the white paper uh, that the ministry is uh, talking about talks a lot about how to be improve this kind of health literacy so I would say one challenge definitely is health literacy the other challenge is that uh, you know in Malaysia I think we give less value to outcomes driven healthcare than than we should be giving it's more about access and affordability which i think is extremely important and that i do not take the value out of it but i think what's important is that you get the outcomes that people are able to have productive healthy lifestyle even after cancer and they are able to contribute back to the economy mm. and i think th- this requires some mindset shift are we paying for outcomes or are we paying just for treatment which basically does not necessarily give you you know mm. bring you back into the economy mm. so i think that's the second mindset shift that i would say and i think of course then there's a infrastructure uh, whether it's capabilities of you know do we have geneticists do we have enough pathologists who understand this kind of treatment and do we have an infrastructure which allows for doctors you know cancer typically is a multidisciplinary treatment what we mean by that is not one doctor can take care of the treatment you need multiple doctors of different specialties to come together 
And ensuring that we have an infrastructure that allows for this kind of data and information exchange between doctors so that right decisions can be taken for the patient. That's the third challenge. Infrastructure also includes earlier screening, earlier diagnosis, um, and most cancers in Malaysia are diagnosed at very late stages. So if if I were to say what are the challenges, uh, I would say these are the three big areas that one needs to look at to improve overall cancer outcomes in Malaysia. I'm speaking to Dipti Saraf, General Manager of Roche Malaysia. We'll have more from the conversation after the break. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. You are listening to The Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G makes business sense. Thanks for staying tuned to The Breakfast Grill. I'm Shazana Mokhtar and with me today is Deepti Saraf, General Manager of Roche Malaysia. We are talking about uh, some of the changes in the pharmaceutical landscape uh, in the post-COVID environment. Uh, Deepti, Roche is most prominently associated with the oncology field, even as you're looking to diversify into other diseases. I'm curious to hear from you in terms of the trends that you're observing in terms of the incidence of cancer in Malaysia and also the treatments that are being demanded by hospitals and patients. What what are you observing? I think uh, cancer is uh, going to be the disease of the future with an aging population, right? And it's the disease of the present. It's not going away. We are seeing uh, in breast cancer, cervical cancer, lung cancer, we are seeing a growing incidence rate based on the changing lifestyles, uh, you know, change in genetics and stress levels, etc. We are going to see with increasing incidence, we continue to see increasing mortality. So breast cancer will grow at about 40%, 30 to 40%, but mortality grows at 40% too. And and that's uh, disturbing. One other big trend is that in Malaysia, we continue to get diagnosed at very late stages in the disease. Um, So stage three, stage four, whether it's lung cancer, whether it's breast cancer, Mm. cervical cancer, very late stage disease diagnosis. And I think the third big challenge is the dropouts of treatment, right? So people um, not willing to travel because of cultural reasons, religious reasons sometimes, uh, of course, financial reasons as well, dropping out of treatment Uh, which basically then leads to poorer outcomes. Mm. So um, these are some of the disturbing trends that we are seeing. But what we are also seeing at the same time is at least a willingness from the healthcare system. And, you know, this is again like the white paper uh, talks a lot about it, is how do we strengthen our primary healthcare system to screen and diagnose earlier, Mm. right? How do we then refer the patients to the tertiary cares earlier? But I think we are seeing that we are seeing some positive trends on allowing for care closer to home. And of course, a lot needs to be done to enable that. But that is going to be the game changer for diseases such as cancer, but also other diseases like mental health and Alzheimer's, right? How do you bring care closer to home? When it comes to the talk of cancer treatment, though, you can't escape just from the cost of it. I think you mentioned cancer, and the next thing that comes is really the cost of treatment, uh, which has ballooned over the years. I'm curious about your thoughts on um, proposals for a medicine price mechanism, for example. This was put forth under the previous government uh, in a bid to address the rising cost of drugs, especially in the private sector. Uh, How would an introduction of such a policy impact Roche's business here, I suppose? Yeah, So I think uh, when we look at cost of treatment, we have to look at the holistic cost of treatment, right? So 
when you look at cancer, there is a cost of traveling. There is a cost of uh, losing productivity, right? Being, uh, you know, not being able to go back to work, not just for yourself, but also for the caregiver. There's a cost of diagnosis. There's a cost of care delivery. And there's a cost of treatment. Medicines only account for 8 to between 8 and 20%, depending on the disease, mm -hmm. of the whole cost of treatment. So there is a lot of costs that go into in, in getting good cancer care or, and for that matter, any kind of care. So, yes, controlling the price of medicines or medicine price transparency, of course, will reduce some costs, but they will not, they will not be enough and justified for, for the actual cost of treatment. One also has to realize that the cost is not just the cost that I charged to the healthcare system. The, between me and the patient, there are a lot of different players that have a value to add to the healthcare system, which also increases the cost of that treatment. So we'll also have to look at these middle players and see how the costs at their end can be reduced mm. so that the patients actually get the cost that they deserve. From a Roche perspective, we follow something called as differential pricing across the globe, where we really look at the GDP of the country in different parameters, where you know where the country stands. And I would like to say that in Malaysia, we are one of the lowest priced compared to the neighboring markets. Besides this, I have around till we we support patients who can't afford therapy with something called as patient assistance programs. Till date, I think 14,500 odd patients have been given these kind of treatment supports where we, we, we subsidize the cost of treatment. I have a few other mechanisms in Roche where we are looking at outcomes-based pricing. So we are working with two hospitals in Malaysia where we actually tell them, don't pay for the drug, pay for the outcome. So if you get the outcome, you pay for the drug at that time. So pay for outcomes or value-based healthcare uh, kind of pricing mechanisms. Um, and then, of course, we have a program called Roche Cares. Again, about 300 odd breast cancer women have benefited from this till date where we are looking at the lower end of the population strata uh, and Roche is looking at, again, subsidizing the cost. So it's a tripatriate arrangement with the hospital, with Roche and the patient where we co-fund the treatment so that patients can, again, reduce the cost. Hmm. And we are not alone. Pharmaceutical industry in general, we are also employees and recipients of healthcare, right? We all want to bring down the cost. And I think medicine pricing transparency, we are fully for it. Mm. But I think price controls will also have to be looked at in terms of the economic impact. Uh, there is a study that was done recently called the CBA 2.0, uh, again, involving multiple stakeholders, which said that for every dollar saved on something like a price control will result in a $3.3 loss to the economy. Um, so, yeah, I think we have to look at this more holistically mm. and, um, and, and, and decide what's the right way forward right. for Malaysia. Price controls aren't the silver bullet uh, to ballooning costs of healthcare. As you mentioned, there are many other uh, parts of the puzzle to look at. I do want to ask you regarding um, how you see sales trends moving forward because Roche, the group, had cautioned earlier this year that um, it projects something of biosimilar erosion of some 1.6 billion Swiss francs due to the availability of cheaper alternatives for a trio of legacy cancer drugs. I'm wondering if that is something that's going to affect your contract supplies with Malaysian parties. Are buyers here opting for uh, alternatives uh, as a result of this? 
Yes, of course. Uh, and we welcome biosimilars. I think, uh, you know, it's it's important that we have healthy competition and, uh, you know, biosimilars, if they make the products accessible, uh, you know, I think it, it it should be encouraged. So as, as a policy, Roche encourages biosimilars. Uh, yes, some of our contracts with the government will will expire, and they will opt for the uh, the alternatives. I think again, what is most important is as science is advancing, new drugs have come into the market that mm-hmm. allow for again better outcomes than what we used to, what we have biosimilars now for. Right? Uh, there are drugs in breast cancer that can extend your life by another ten months, five months, seventeen months, uh, di- di- different diseases different outcomes. And I think, again, like I said, it's important that we pay for outcomes uh, and pay for quality mm-hmm. uh, of care uh, and look at that. That's very important. But we also pay for convenience and patient uh, uh, patient, uh, patient convenience is equally important because there are certain products that can be given, like I said, at home or closer to home. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, these are, these are some of the areas how we are diversifying uh, to protect ourselves or to, you know, to ensure that patients have better outcomes going forward. I'm curious about the time it takes for these new novel drugs that you say that have better outcomes. How long would it take for something like that to be introduced to the Malaysian market? Yeah, so you have these uh, blockbuster drugs, uh, but I guess what's the timeline for seeing that uh, actually being made available here? What do you think would facilitate that process? Yeah, how, how does that look like? Yeah, that's a great question. Firstly, I would say I was just looking at a report and it says that only about 22% of globally launched molecules are available in Malaysia. Uh, At an APAC level, the percentage is 20. So we are definitely doing better than Asia Pacific. But, you know, there is a long way to go uh, compared to a Taiwan or a Korea or, you know, or a Singapore even. Uh, now, I would say that significant progress has been made in the in the way products are being registered and brought to Malaysia. But I have also seen more progress being made in other neighboring markets as well. So uh, today, I would say that it takes anywhere between 12 to 24 months for a drug to get launched in after a global launch to be launched in Malaysia. Mm. There are other markets like Singapore or Hong Kong, which rely more on reliance, which means if a country has launched it, they rely on that country's ability to track and uh, you know assess the product and launch it in like six months. Um, Thailand has been able to do that as well. So I think there is, there is some scope. And I think what is the positive trend for me is the local registration authority is looking at all this. And there is a high willingness to uh, to decrease the timelines of launch. So I'm, 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 I'm very positively impressed with how our regulatory body is approaching this. But yes, there is improvement that needs to be done. Okay. In the little bit of time that we have, Deep Deep, I think this is an area that perhaps there isn't really much attention given to, and that's really the way gender factors or doesn't factor into medicine and treatment. Yeah, And you mentioned the data, for example, and the amount of data that we have and that could be used uh, for patient care. How can gender be better utilized in that sense in terms of ensuring that uh, patients have better treatments? I mean, I can speak about uh, this in cancer. 40% of women die because of breast cancer in us in european markets 99 percent women can live for more than 15 years with breast cancer 
So it's, it's a statistics that we cannot be proud of. Again, the challenge with women's cancers is it's a societal challenge, right? It's a religious challenge. It's, a, it's cultural. Women have to prioritize their families. They have to bring a male to see a doctor. Even if they have the disease, it's a taboo to talk about these diseases. Um, so there are cultural challenges. There are challenges financially, even after knowing about the disease and the risk of death, women are dropping out of treatment, again, um, you know, because of multiple reasons. And um, again, they're getting diagnosed at very late stages because of not being able to share this and because of care not being available closer to home. For Roche, uh, one of our biggest missions is how do we bring cancer care so close to a woman's life? that it becomes very easy to access it. It becomes easy to talk to somebody about it. Lancet re recently released a report which basically says that healthcare workers across the world have to be trained on how to take care of women and how to provide a women-centered uh, approach to healthcare, right? Like the kind of conversations you need to have with the women is very different from what you would do with a man. So most women get ignored for pain symptoms, uh, for endometriosis, uh, you know, all of that. And so I think we all have to train. Recently, Roche, uh, as part of a coalition uh, across APAC, released a report called the Impact and Opportunity in the Case for Investing in Women's Cancers in Asia Pacific. And uh, it talks about, you know, the gaps in cancer care. It compares six markets across Asia but it also provides some recommendations on how we can make this shift happen. And I would say the biggest shift is in the mindset uh, that a woman is not just a reproductive uh, part of the society. Uh, she brings so much more value uh, and economic uh, benefits. You and I are both women working, uh, and I think that needs to be understood. So bringing care closer to home is where the answer is in my mind. Deepti, thank you very much for speaking to me and sharing your insights today. Thank you so much for having me. I've been speaking to Deepti Saraf, General Manager of Roche Malaysia. This has been The Breakfast Grill on BFM 89.9. The BFM Breakfast Grill, brought to you by U-Mobile. 5G makes business sense. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, Download the BFM app.